Tony Duchesne here, and welcome to episode 107 of Drinks with Tony. Sadness. Sadness and madness. How are you coping with pandemic times? Oh, it's getting hard. And I'm not talking down there. I'm talking in the brain. But a reprieve in my life is that I love storytelling and chatting all things storytelling. Thus, the Drinks with Tony podcast and teaching screenwriting and novel and everything up and down and in between. Talking storytelling, it keeps my sanity. How are you keeping your sanity? And can I say Bill Burr gives me hope for all the bullshit going on? What a great monologue on SNL. Oh my God, why does everyone take themselves so seriously? We're humans, puny, easily killed humans. Let's get some levity in the utter frustration. That's the human condition. Dig into your soul. Live your truth. You are the only person who has your experiences, your fingerprint on the elements of your struggle that brought you here to this place, to this time, to this moment. Don't cower and be a victim and weep in fetal position because of who you are. Weep in fetal position because we're in a pandemic. And this week's guest is a feminist. She's really cool. I'm excited to have, uh, I'm excited to talk about, (laughs) I'm excited about a lot of things. I can't even speak. I'm excited about how she created her journey. Her journey actually towards this book started with an illness. And that is at the middle of the interview. It's really good. Uh, Hello, this is Helen Pluckrose and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Helen Pluckrose. She's the co-author of Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. Helen, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Great. And you co-wrote this book with James Lindsay. I did. How did how did How did you and him get together? Um, we met by arguing on Twitter and, um, <laughs> really? yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and now we have four kids. No, <laughs> <laughs> no he, um, he, he was being completely and totally wrong, obviously. And so I, I felt the need to tell him so. And then there was quite a heated argument in which he told me that, um, he can't help it if I don't actually read what he's saying. And then he wrote a blog about how wrong I was about everything and then we, um, yeah, I, I bought his book in order to um, to dismantle it because I anticipated hating it. And actually, I didn't. It was great. And then we, uh, so I wrote a positive review and then we started writing together. This is the first time in history where people were fighting on Twitter and then they became friends and co-authored, well, I don't know if you're friends, but you co-authored a book together and you, and you came to a mutual agreement. Has this yeah, ever um, happened in social media? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, very occasionally um, things start out hostile and they end well, but I, I find um, increasingly often they, things that start well can then turn hostile and that's, that's quite upsetting. But yes, we are very good friends as well. <laughs> Oh my God. I, okay. I wish I could just end the show there. Cause that's all we need to know <laughs> that, that there's something good out of social media. Cause social media just freaks me out. Cause I feel like it's just this big, um, everyone's just screaming to the echo chamber and then to have like mm. an actual discourse and somebody go, wait a second, let me see if, let me see who this person is. Um, yeah, I don't know if it would have happened now, but I mean, we, we've both of us, we've sort of attracted so much um, hostility now that it's, I think we're both um, much lower on patience. I'm handling it by being on Twitter less. I'm having someone else manage my account for me most of the time. Jim um, is taking absolutely no prisoners, zero patience with people having a go at him on Twitter now. So, uh, yeah, we've said it's a good thing that we had this argument a few years ago and not right now, or we'd probably have just blocked each other. And there's something important about that because I think we are losing discourse where we're, it's, uh, we're, we're just, not even, not even discourse between each other, but like discourse in people's minds. I'm like, how do you, how do you go around all day? Are you screaming like you do when you do on social media? And, you know, I'm not talking about think, you, I'm saying in general. 
<laughs> I think discourse is, is a good way to look at it because I think what people are doing at the moment is speaking to the discourses they understand each other to be speaking into. So, you know, with the kind of um, scholarship I'm looking at, we're looking at, at discourses as a way of speaking about things. So you and me and, and probably everybody, because it's a human thing, somebody will use a certain term, they'll make a certain claim, and instantly your brain fills in all the gaps, and you've then positioned them in this particular place, and then you feel like you can respond to any any argument at all within that discourse even if it wasn't the one that was just made and so this I think is something that has really really increased recently because I will I will say something um, critical of um, say critical race theory and then a load of assumptions will be made about my um, political position I'll be on the right um, my um, my vote on the brexit I, I'll be a lever and all these other ideas that I'm I'm supposed to have which I often don't have so it's uh, it gets quite frustrating but I know I've done it I've done it myself a man came in and he said to me that um, that racism is is defined as privilege um, plus power plus prejudice plus power and I thought oh you're, you're a typical um, one of the of those kind of theorists who, who's um, who's looking totally at power structures and I, I was completely wrong five minutes later I discovered that he was very very critical of the whole critical race theory idea and and he um yeah he was making a completely different argument so i, I think if we can give it a, a minute to to probe a bit more deeply before assuming anything it's it's worth doing <laughs> i think having a drink with someone or going to lunch somewhat with someone if you're sitting there with each other in awkward conversation or silence for an hour i think empathy always ends up in the end i uh, for the most part i i just i don't uh yeah, this the the soundbite. Everyone thinks there. Are, this is the problem. This is yeah, this is what I think the problem is. You tell me if I'm wrong, Anna. But the um, everyone thinks they're on the Daily Show or they're a political pundit when they're just in their underwear on a phone, and you're and it's just like you're, you you don't have no skin in the game. You're well, why why are you screaming to this? Yeah, I I, th I think you know in a lot of ways I think it's it's great that we have social media now and and people everybody can speak to everybody in principle and they can all air their ideas. It's not a matter anymore that we're only hearing from, you know, the the most um, educated and successful people who get get to write in in newspapers and things but in a, in another way it does mean that we can just sort of seize on somebody who is the worst representative of their political view and and sort of declare them to be representative of it so it, you know that's always been a case particularly with with feminists who will find some um gutter dweller speaking about the um immorality and stupidity of women and say this is why i need feminism well no it isn't it's not this poor guy with six followers on social media who um doesn't seem to have any friends you're uh, yeah extrapolating a bit far there <laughs> yeah yeah i think social media gives people the opportunity to behave badly in ways they wouldn't behave in person that's uh that's kind of the bummer. Mm -hmm. And it scares me because people who didn't grow up before social media don't have probably the same type of, what do you call it? Um, relationship skills. They didn't play, play on the playground and break an arm. So <laughs> everyone needs to break an arm when they're a kid and play on the playground and cry. I am, I am very glad that social media didn't exist when I was in my teens and twenties. Yeah. <laughs> when um, the, so what attracted, what attracted me to this book, and I was like, oh, my God. Well, two things. I knew about the academic papers that you and uh, James wrote, as well as um, just how we're, I feel like we're really losing it on PC culture. And the, mm -hmm. and the linguistics of it is, um, has been scaring me for a while. And I kind of feel like we're just down the – we're all lemmings now. We're all kind of going off the cliff. I don't know how, I don't know how we bring it back to having um, human decency and morality when – a lot of the times, in my personal experience, I, I see the people who are screaming the loudest tend not to be really good people um, in their lives. Like they they won't pay. They'll they're the people that are litter on the street and uh, they, they everything around them is just uh, blowing chaos. And then they're they think they're an authority on this uh, one topic. Whew, I talk too lot. Help me out, Helen. <laughs> 
I certainly think, yeah, that there's an element of that. People can obtain a significant amount of power on, on social media by sort of teaming up with other people um, in order to um, sort of signal their, their righteousness in, in various fashionable ways. And so we'll often see, I, th I think that one of the best examples of this was, did, did you see when um, Macy's withdrew one of its bowls? Because it, it had um, portion sizes on and, it, and they were in um, jean sizes and, and the biggest um, portion was, was mum jeans. So that was accused of being fat phobia and Macy's actually withdrew that and I think that started with uh, two people being offended on Twitter and then this tapped into the fat activist um, branch and then, then everything was all over. They just had to apologise and withdraw it. And if we think about the concept, you know, yes, Macy's is a large corporation, but how much money did it take to, you know, get get those things on the shelf. People don't understand that how much, if something's on the shelf, it took a lot of time and money and resources. Um, mm -hmm. And then two people complain. I used to be a waiter. If, mm -hmm. if the, the people who, it's the, there was always the crappy person who complained during one shift. And that was the only person I remembered because they stiffed me. They were jerks. And I, and every, all the other, all, all my other tables were great. But that one person that whole night, would drive me crazy. Now it seems like that one person is just the general public. It, it's okay. They've give they've been given enough free meals for decades that now they all they want is free meals and to be offended. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, these might be my problems, Helen. Has no, no, I'm, I'm there. I see it. I mean, one thing I I don't. Um... I don't say often because of, of the three of us, the person who probably gets the most um, hostility is, is Peter Bogosian. And um, he is um, somewhat blunt and not always very tactful. And I, I understand why he can rub people up the wrong way. But the reality of, of Peter is that he just invites waifs and strays into his home. You know, he's uh, both human and canine ones. He takes people in and he looks after them and then he sort of puts all his energy into into trying to help them sort whatever it, whatever their problems are. And he's just this really kind of big, warm, cuddly person. And people oh. don't tend to, to see that at all. They, they tend to, because I think his public persona is, is quite abrasive, and I, I look at people who are saying, oh, well, you just said something which could be interpreted as sexist. And I, I think, have you, have you done that? Have you taken a homeless, depressed man into your home and given him somewhere to live for 10 years? No. So shut up. <laughs> right. And it's, and it's sad that we have to, it's sad that we have to, um, that people, yeah, that we go straight for that. And I'm doing it too. I'm going like, oh, you know, I see someone post one thing and I'm like, oh God, you're that person. But then I, I just need to go have uh, breakfast with like, <laughs> 5,000 friends on Facebook to understand the empathy of the, in the end. Mm. I, I don't know what to do. Anyway, you're, uh, so the, I, was, I was new to learning this, but uh, can we talk about the academic papers that you, that you uh, wrote? Um, and th this just blows my mind because it's, it's a prank. But it's uh, part of it's a prank. I I, <laughs> I get it. To tell me I'm wrong, just tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> but it seems like a prank. But it's actually really. It seems really important at the same time. So. Yeah, I, and a project hasn't um, always been that well understood. It, it's not. I mean, we we've um, just kind of accepted the word hoax, but that isn't really the best way. Um, to see it because our papers were indistinguishable from the other papers that are out there. So if the um, journals stand by their, their epistemology, their way of determining what's true and their ethics and their methods, they shouldn't have a problem, shouldn't have, they'd have no need to be embarrassed. So an example that we've given is if a biology paper, a biology journal accepted a paper that was scientifically sound on um, some element of evolutionary biology. And then later the person who wrote it said, actually jokes on you, I'm a creationist they would have no cause to be embarrassed because the paper itself would be sound, whether or not the people who wrote it believed it. So this is um, what we did. I mean, some of our papers, we um, included fake data, but this data was either impossible or extremely implausible. And in each case, we drew conclusions from it that weren't 
even remotely warranted. So we included that in order to see whether journals would pick up that we were doing horrible things with data and, you know, um, four of them were accepted and, and they didn't pick that up when they should have done. But the, overall, there was an argument. You know, there was a theoretical argument which drew on other existing papers and cited them completely accurately. So the journals would have no real reason to be embarrassed if they stood by the solidity of their methods. The one that Hypatia accepted was entirely theoretical. It drew on uh, work by the leading feminist and critical race epistemologists. We have asked Hypatia, um, if you believe that paper was good when we submitted it to you, you should put it back up now. You should publish it. It shouldn't make a difference at all that we don't actually believe it. In that paper, we had argued that only marginalised people can use humour ethically and that there is no... Um, that there's no uh, legitimate way to criticise social justice scholarship and people who try should be shut down or punished. Now, we don't believe that, obviously. We, we think that's one of the biggest problems in the scholarship at the moment is that you just cannot critique it legitimately by their own methods. So uh, that one was accepted fastest of all. In, in nine days, we had a provisional acceptance with minimal revisions. We made the revisions and it, and it was in and it's it's really ethically worrying but few people remember that paper it, it's called um, the jokes on you and uh, no one remembers it because it wasn't funny not like our um, we looked at 10,000 dog genitals and um, determined through black feminist criminology that um, nightclubs are rape condoning spaces you know that one was funny so people remember that one <laughs> but, uh, so um because I, I, I'm not familiar with how academic journals and I and even reading academic papers is hard for me. So when you're putting um when you're putting when you're putting together uh, this this was a paper about um about how certain how people can only tell jokes if they're marginalized. Is that the yeah? We we looked at different uses of of humor. When when is um when is mocking humor appropriate and so we we argued that um, when it's done by less powerful groups say women or um, or racial minorities and it's done to poke fun at dominant groups then this is a political satirical type of humor if um the dominant groups are doing it to um, marginalized groups then it is disparagement humor and it is bullying now there's quite a lot of, of truth in that i don't think that you know jokes about black people would actually be funny maybe national jokes um trading on on sort of stereotypes but what we did which is, is what they do within the scholarship is we conflated um marginalized people with social justice scholarship. So we criticize the scholarship. We don't criticize attempts to address racism, sexism, or homophobia. But they conflate that all the time. So if we are critical of an approach towards understanding racism, we are believed to be um, approving of racism. So we, we conflated that in our paper as well. And, and we said anybody who criticizes critical social justice methods is obviously a racist, sexist, transphobe, just trying to protect their own privilege. They should be shut down. They should probably be punished. They, you know, in academic circles. And they said this, this was an excellent um, contribution to feminist philosophy. So the, um, Going back to the, what, okay, you used the term, what was the term, um, social justice construct or scholarship? Is, yeah. is that the term? Wait, can you explain what that is to me? Because that doesn't, that, I, I know social justice warrior, but I don't know it in this. Uh... Yeah, so th this is where a, a kind of um, sleight of hand can, can come in, because social justice in the, in the lower case, we all want social justice because we all want a society that is just. That is what we're looking for. But there is a, an academic and activist movement which calls itself social justice, which is based in a very particular kind of theory. And this theory, um, or theories, so there, um, there are different kinds in post-colonial studies, in critical race theory and queer theory, which all kind of come together to produce this social justice um, scholarship. And it relies on the idea 
that knowledge is a social construct. What we think is true and what we think is morally good is um, constructed by the powerful in society. The powerful get to say how things are talked about. So these discourses, the dominant ways things are talked about, then get spread throughout society and everybody speaks them without um, thinking about them. And this is how oppression is then perpetuated throughout society. So it becomes very important to critique dominant, um, what, what is it that in, in society that is considered the most reliable producer of knowledge? It's really science. So we see a lot of attacks on science from um, social justice scholars. We see certain ways of knowing um, considered to be white, male, Western, and um, and disparate and then the argument is that other ways of knowing belong to women and um, racial and sexual minorities and they need to be um, now elevated so this is when you'll be told to take a seat stay in your lane listen to trans women listen to to black women as though trans women and, and black women are a monolith and they're not as diverse as say um, Candace Owens and um you know, Kimberley Crenshaw. That so we have this um, this really quite contradictory, uh, messy theory, which really just supports and validates itself, and sees anything that disagrees with it as an attempt to maintain privilege and promote dominant discourses. Instead of just having actual chats with people to try to get to the bottom of things. Uh, I mean, I, there's, there's just, there's a lot of time. I mean, I've worked, you know, I've worked through, through, you know, I'm 51 now. Um, I've worked with, you know, I'm from San Francisco. So I've, I've worked with uh, people who are trans and maybe there's been five of them the, through, through what uh, the things I do. It's, and, um, and two of them have been really shitty people. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like, like bullies um, where I, where my mind was blown. And so mm. um to, to label that, um, to just put a label on someone that's just like, oh, you are this, so we need to hear your side of it. Um, in the end, all of us are kind of assholes uh, <laughs> to some point, you know? It's just, and we're, we're just, uh, my whole life is trying not to be an asshole because I know that I've, mm. it's, it's trying to, re, you know, I'm trying to re, re, uh, reassess my actions and go, wait a second, that's a bad idea. Let's do this instead of pushing my, my uh my my uh my my idiot thoughts on other people i don't know did i veer too far there (laughs) (laughs) okay i'm 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 particularly worried about about trans people and how this um this this kind this the culture what's involving them is is going to end up because i i think you know that there is a sense now when are you politicizing your identity? So we saw um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, for example, she said there's a difference between being racially black and being politically black. So she was really saying there that there is a correct way to be black and that way is a particular political position. There were people who were saying um, Pete Buttigieg was not um, properly gay because he didn't have certain political positions so we've got you just had sexual positions yeah i I just sorry i had it that was there was an opening okay go i'll go back (laughs) so we're seeing this kind of thing happening and it but i think it affects um trans people most because if you're concerned about certain kinds of feminism you're not likely to blame all women for it you will know enough women to know that some of them ascribe to these ideas and more of them don't the same if you're worried about um some of the tactics of black lives matter you're not going to blame every black person for them you know that black liberals also exist that black conservatives also exist that black apolitical people also exist but when it comes to trans people because most trans people don't want to politicize their identity and they don't even want to declare it. They don't want to go around saying, I wasn't born the sex that I'm appearing now. Right. You know? what, people, they, people want to live their lives. Yeah. In so the end, there's, yeah. there's a tendency to, to see, to conflate the worst of the trans activists with trans people. 
And then this, yes. this comes not only from um, critics of social justice who can be right wing or, or liberal, but it also comes from um, people like gender critical feminists who don't, uh, I mean, there, there are some, some trans people who take a gender critical position and they're supported by gender critical feminists, but there's a whole load in the middle who just want to live their lives. They don't want to invade women's um, spaces and, and wave penises around. They don't want to um, get into to sports and um, topple um, sort of promising young female athletes. They, they just want to be left alone. But, right. because, you know, trying to see their identity as not political is, um, is getting increasingly hard. <laughs> exactly, because, oh, thank you, because it's just, there was a time, it feels like it was only like six or seven years ago, where mm. it's just, this is my friend, it's not, this is my trans friend. And, mm. you know, it's just like, and then all of a sudden, it's just like, oh, so how do you feel about trans rights? And they're just going, you gotta be kidding me. Mm. I just wanna relax. I'm having, a, I'm having a cup of coffee with you. Mm. Let's, let's talk one-on-one. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, and it's interesting that, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I, I have a, I really wish I could bring together panels of people where we can be like, okay, you know, not trans rights activists, but just a trans person who's a friend where we can all like talk and have this, have this together. But it's so funny because I have black friends growing up who grew up very wealthy and mm-hmm. they, they don't have a concept of what it was like growing up in, you know, say the projects and there, there's, there's so many different aspects to life. And, you know, I grew up very poor and, and, and in a, in a weird cult, you know? So it's like, I didn't mm. even, it, people can look at me and think I go, I've gone to college or anything. I barely got out of high school. I just, it's, you know, people look at me and think I'm a stoner and I don't get stoned. They think I'm a drug addict, but it's just, <laughs> you have just, a hippie vibe going I on. Know, I know. <laughs> it's, it's just the way I look. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, but part of it, we do have to, I mean, you know, we look at, uh, uh, I don't know where I'm going with this. Do you know where I'm going, Helen? <laughs> I'm not quite sure. I, I got hung up on the hippie bit. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's easy to do. I mean, I, I am a hippie in my heart, like when it comes to eating right and stuff, or I'm just like, you know, oh yeah, let's have falafel and, uh, <laughs> and veggies. Um, anyway, um, let's get back to, uh. To matters at hand, I think, which is, um, I, I guess, what what I really what I really enjoyed most because uh, is the introduction to your book and the just the how we're we're, we're kind of, I feel like we're losing it in the politically correct culture and we're losing the um, we're lo- we're losing conversation, especially amongst people that I agree with. Like I, I'm I'm a I completely agree with a lot of these people that are like you know liberal and even if they're very far left i'm like yeah i kind of agree with you but can you stop screaming at me about it and throwing that little angle in there because that angle scares me yeah i mean i i think this is why people like me get particular hostility from um social justice activists is because i share their aims i think racism remains a problem i think it affects it overwhelmingly affects non-white people i think that um homophobia is still a significant problem particularly for young people i'm as i've said i'm i'm particularly worried about trans people i'm not convinced that um being female has ever been any kind of disadvantage for me i don't believe i live in a patriarchy but Generally, I've, you know, I, I oppose um, sexist ideas, where, however they fall, but I don't agree with the methods. I don't think knowledge should be ascribed to identity. I think that everybody should be treated as an individual. Now, sometimes people say that, that liberals like, like me, and I'm using liberal in that, that philosophical sense of respect for the individual and their freedom and their ability to reach their own potential. So we use this a bit differently across the, the, uh, the Atlantic. We don't use it um, synonymously with left wing. But that's why we should all go to Greenland in the middle of the Atlantic because there might be a coming together, right? No, I'm sorry. Let's, go ahead. Go ahead. I interrupted you. 
so there, the whole sort of critical social justice thing is, is explicitly critical of liberalism because liberalism said we need to remove the social significance from an identity category. So, you know, being a man or a woman or black or white or gay or straight can be important to you. You'd want to be recognized as this, but it shouldn't make anybody else in the world ascribe any particular role personality or any kind of traits to you it should be socially and morally irrelevant what sex or race you are so the liberal um, goal was to keep removing this significance keep removing barriers that prevented women from getting into um, powerful positions which prevented um, black people from achieving um, sort of the high in the highest professions as well. So this was the liberal aim, whereas the social justice aim, when they came along, it was, something happened in 1989 and a whole load of writing emerged about the need to stop doing this liberal thing and start doing an identity politics thing. They said there's power in race, in sex, in, well, in gender, more than sex now, um, and, um, and in sexuality, and we need to... Um, kind of organize around this identity and make it front and center. Now that is the complete opposite of what we need to do. We are a tribal territorial species of ape. What we need to do, how we work better is if we expand our circle of empathy as far as we can. If we recognize as many humans as we can as part of our tribe. If we go with identity politics and we see black people as a group separate to white people and also in conflict, if we see men and women as different groups in conflict, it will just bring out the worst of our nature. Now, some people think that this means if you say, I don't see colour, if you have a commitment where you don't identify people by their race and put significance in that that means you won't see racism but that isn't how it works if you have an ethical um, principle where race is irrelevant it means that you then object to people treating as though race race as though it isn't irrelevant you if somebody says well th this person is is lesser in some way because they are black then this is a problem for those of us who think we need a commitment to not put social significance in race do you think that um the, the around in the late 80s that uh because because there was a lot of forward momentum with Let's try to just try to get things. Um, what do you call it? Let's try to get women more in the workplace, where in positions of power. Do you think there was like a, a a success to that? So there would be kind of like a wait, what can we do next? Or instead of a instead of oh, this is working, let's continue to massage this and be mellow about it. I I think it, it's easier to look at what was happening with. Um, with sexual equality, with equality between men and women, because there are actual differences psychologically between men and women. So I think we can see a problem in the way feminism thought when the liberal feminist, including my mother, she uh, campaigned in the 60s to get Lloyds Bank to allow women to take accountancy exams. She campaigned in the 70s to get women um, able to have mortgages without male guarantors. So this was liberal feminism. There was also And this just blows my mind now because that's that that sounds crazy these days that yeah. that had to be fought for. <laughs> yeah. But th this is what they were doing and by the end of the the 70s and into the 80s these legal equalities had been achieved but this didn't mean that attitudes um, were, were going away you know there was there was still sexist attitudes where some uh, men were expected to do some things women were expected to do others and so the next wave of um, feminists they looked they, that postmodernism was a good um, tool for them because it looked at the way we talk about things the assumptions the biases and how that constrains people so they could use this as long as they simplified it and made it into a politically actionable theory so we have the idea that gender which is best understood as the behaviors and traits associated with one sex was entirely a social construct so 
this is is a complicated thing because some aspects of what we consider gender gender roles for in particular are socially constructed we can see how women have been considered suitable for various activities and not for others throughout history and how it's changed but psychological cognitive and behavioral traits between men and women do differ so i think we've hit a problem where a certain kind of a feminist expects women to make the same choices in the same numbers that men do and this isn't necessarily going to happen we are not absolutely the same if we're looking I, I find evolutionary psychology to be useful for this I know there's a lot of criticism of it because they people say it's essentializing but I don't think it is if you actually read the psychology itself it often shows much less difference than a lot of people think there is but women do are different we do speak before men do we speak more we maintain that um, communication advantage throughout our lives we generally do better with literacy we can see more layers of social nuance on average of course we all know a man who is great at this and a woman who's terrible at it but on average so there are these social um, and communication skills that women have and men on average have less of them men on the other hand have a more goal orientated focus they have um, a better ability to rotate um, things spatially in their minds which translate to a, a better um, sense of direction this is this is quite simple women with higher testosterone have a better sense of direction than women oh, with wow. low testosterone yeah. so the, these are real differences and these shouldn't threaten anybody it doesn't mean that one sex is better than another it doesn't mean that there won't be women who are going to be brilliant engineers it doesn't mean there won't be men who are going to be brilliant nurses it just means we're probably not going to see the same balance and maybe that's okay Exactly. The, the way I relate it in my life is because you know I, I, I write, I write, so I write for like I write screenplays and fiction. And when I'm workshopping something, I really need the male and female point of view because women women I workshop with will tell me things that really make the really push the story a certain way that us guys don't get. And then I deal with my men, and we you know we work on things, but it's just. It's always great to have a mix because the um, just just the nuance of life, and and then by the time something comes out, and you're a writer, and if you've workshopped with, with a well balanced group, they're like, you're really in touch with your feminine side, and she's like, oh no no, that, that Martha gave me that note, but thank you, yeah. <laughs> I, I I really want to. I've um I've just floated a, a new book actually that I'm I'm hoping to write next year, and I'm I'm going to um write about how gender studies could be a really really valuable um discipline if it took into account biology psychology and empirical sociology so i i i have i feel quite strongly about this because i think that there is unnecessary political tension between men and women which is based on a false idea that we are governed by social constructs that are harmful so at least as much as i hear feminists tell me that um, women are being socialized into domestic roles by adverts on television i will hear social conservatives tell me women are being socialized into having careers because of feminism i don't think women are that easily swayed i study um, my, my academic background i looked at um, how women empowered themselves using religious narratives between 1300 and 1700 i think women find a way to do what they want to do because we are we are human beings who know what we want there are social pressures of course there are but i get quite angry with um with narratives that make women and it, it always is women much more than men so utterly suggestible to to ideologies and social forces that constrain them yeah it's we're the human race <laughs> and it's fun this i mean and, the, and you know it's just the you know for me it's just like the you know as a man who was married for many years and then dated after that and i now have a, another relationship and it's um it's about trying to understand each other and understand the woman's point of view in my circumstance and understand and then understand where you know 
where I need to adjust. And then we, we have to, we're kind of constantly adjusting each other to, I feel like we're, when we challenge each other, essentially when we <coughs> fight, <laughs> we'll just call it, but, but we need that conflict in order to get to the discourse of, oh, wait, this is where I need to adjust. Oh, wait, I said that, I said that poorly. It, 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 I feel like it just, it always helps me in the end become a little better person when I'm trying to understand a woman's point of view. And I'm also trying to understand how I play into my partner's point of view. I, I think it's a problem if we try to read um, each other through our, our own um, points of view. We, we see quite a lot of um, pathologizing of masculine traits like um, stoicism, like competitiveness, like um, sort of rough and tumble uh, play, and that kind of um, and that that kind of sort of uh, proactive, aggressive um, thing. But th this is something that can manifest in healthy or unhealthy ways. You know, this can manifest in somebody risking their life as a firefighter, or it can manifest in getting into pointless fights and causing a lot of pain and suffering. Yeah. Um, the same is true with women and their edge in communication and um, and psychology. You know, this can cause women to be the most uh, nurturing and supportive people in the world. It can also cause them to be the cruelest verbal bullies. Yeah. So we're, <laughs> we, we really, I think, need a strong understanding of how this works without um, a moralistic gendered lens on it. Yes. So, so essentially, um, that was like, Tony, you're, you're wrong. You're not thinking healthy about that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> were, you, were you trying to adjust my thought process? It's okay. I was out of line. So. No, I, I think, okay. I, no, I think you're, I think you're okay there, but I, okay. um, but I there was, was something just... there. I, I was a little <laughs> off. I was off. I just tend to, um, yeah, bring it down to um, statistics and stuff. I, I tend to intellectualize things. Sorry. Well, yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, because it helps because I tend to not do that. And it's, and then it gets worrisome sometimes. Um, well, I was just going to ask you something. I completely forgot what it was because I was so obsessed with myself. You know, in the <laughs> end, in the, in the end, we're all so obsessed with how, uh, you know, we ourselves look to other people. We forget that nobody's looking at us. Yes, I think that's, that's true. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, how, how did you, so, so your mom was a feminist, right? Mm. That's what you said earlier. Okay. Yeah. How, how did, how did you decide to go, you know, I'm going, I'm going down this career path. Like what was it when you were young where you're like going, you know what, I'm going to be in a punk rock band or, or <laughs> I'm going to go, or I'm going to do academia. No, well, I, I, that's the thing. I didn't, I was, I was a feminist because my, my mother was, and she was um, really a, a reasonable and empowered feminist. And I grew up in the, um, in the late eighties when there was that um, sisters are doing it for themselves celebratory thing. But I then went into home care and I worked um, as a carer for minimum wage for elderly people in their own homes from the age of 17 until the age of 34 and then I had uh, something like a stroke it's not quite a stroke because it's to do with a, an abnormality in my brain and so I then spent several years where I couldn't mobilize very well I was dizzy and sick and I um, had visual problems and so I that did had to my be scary it it was, but in a strange way, it wasn't because when it it was caused by by pregnancy, it it um, affected a, a problem that was there in my brain that we didn't know about. We always knew mm -hmm. I was epileptic, but not why. Okay. And then when I was pregnant, um, yeah, it caused more problems. But I thought for for about six weeks, I thought I was going to die because they, the the symptoms were very much as though I had a tumor on my brainstem and that was what they were they weren't sure what they were seeing i had a six week old baby and i was planning you know i was thinking i'm going to i was writing letters that when she's um, you know when she's three this is for oh. her this will be when she's four and it was oh. horrible I, I thought i was going to die and then they found out that it it wasn't um anything it wasn't cancer it was a water-filled cyst and it had okay, done so, damage. Okay, so, so tell me what was the feeling when you found out you weren't going to die? 
after your after your writing after your writing letters to your daughter i'm like okay well, when you're 16 don't go out with this boy but go out with this boy <laughs> and then all of a sudden they're like hold on you don't need to write any more letters what was that feeling yeah and i mean because for, for a long time i'd said that this pain was there and people were saying well it's, it's just postnatal depression you're imagining it and then i had paralysis down one side and the relief suddenly it was god i can prove it now so when they found out that it was it was likely to be something awful yes i had this horrible cold feeling and, and in the middle of the night i was thinking these things and then they found at first because first they found it it wasn't um, it wasn't cancer. It was a water-filled cyst, but they, it wasn't clear if it was going to get better. You can still die of a non-cancerous lump if it if it grows, if it pushes on the right right kind of thing. But when it was discovered, yeah, it's not it's not growing. It's staying exactly the same size. There's been some damage, but it's probably going to repair itself. It didn't repair itself for a, for a very long time. So I was ill, and I'm I'm still um, not. Um, always well but I'm a lot better than I was when but the pain hadn't stopped so that that was the problem the the pain was unendurable but when we found a medication that that stopped the pain then yes then I just suddenly I, I had this great joy of life this great sense of purpose then that I was out of I was out of pain I had my child I was going to live and um, a lot of the problems that I'd had before that I'd suffered from OCD and um, anxiety. And after that, I've, I've really been able to get on top of all of it because thinking you're going to die, you're going to leave your child. Um, you know, there's really nothing matters that much after that. I start thinking, did I fill my tax return in properly? Well, if I made a mistake, you know, everybody's alive. Everybody's well. It's not the end of the world. <laughs> It puts things into perspective. So then, mm. so so then you're, <clears throat> so then you're like new lease on life. And mm. then, did did you did you like go back to university or what was what was the um what did yep, you, what I, did you, I went um, because I I wasn't a good student at school. I mean, I I think I had the ability, but I wasn't didn't have the interest. So I did A levels, which is our high school. Um, diploma and I didn't um, actually turn up for any of my exams and I also started working before I finished that and I because it was a property slump I, I bought my own home um, on this uh, wage that I had so it wasn't um, you know a completely destructive um, silly thing to do but I, I just worked for a, a long time and it I always wanted to go back and do I wanted to study English literature because I was pretty sure I was good at that and then at 34 my husband he finally convinced me to just to just do it just apply and I applied thinking nothing would come of it and they accepted me and when I handed in my first exam uh, my, my first paper I, I thought now I will find out I've always thought that I'm good at this but I may have been fooling myself let's see what comes back and what came back was a first which you know is, is the highest grade with the comment just the comment this bodes well I thought yes I can do this and so at undergraduate I won the the dean's award for um outstanding dissertation because I got the the highest grade um for the school of um arts and digital industries and then yeah this gave me a lot of confidence to go on and um think actually I am I am quite good at this I'm I have this kind of brain I can do this <laughs> it's that's it's so fantastic it's um you know when we go through these struggles, when we have these really just tough times in life, and then look back with gratitude on on them, I, that, that's what I've had to do. Uh, maybe I'm fooling myself, but you know, the it's the narrative is like we come out of it stronger. Um, but so, and then and then after that, um, so did you start out as English literature? Did you did you move towards that first? Yep, I, I studied English literature first, and this is where I came across postmodernism mm -hmm. and literary theory. And then at postgrad, I went into early modern studies, and I was looking at 1300 to 1700. So that's still literature, but it's um, with a strong historical focus. I'm looking more at historical texts than um, than sort of pure literature. So yeah, that was, um, that was what I studied next. And that's, that's what interested me. I wanted to be a feminist historian. 
essentially I wanted to look at the ways women and I, I picked certain women in certain times and how they had managed to achieve things for themselves despite having the deck stacked against them by this um, society which which really said men had to be in charge and how they used because religion religion was the way to do this really right. at this point so I looked for example at Marjorie Kemp and she was a, a mystic and I, I think she was probably um, quite mentally ill to be honest looking at what she she wrote but she managed to get um, authority for herself by having visions because if you're in the patriarchal society you know she had to do what her husband said and her husband would be punished if she didn't so there, there was that setup there you know if she traveled she had to have a note from her, her husband saying she was allowed to so and, what, is, and you know, what years was this what this this was the late 14th century and early 15th oh okay so this isn't like 1979 no, no, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. Is, no, no, I, this no. is the late, the <laughs> yeah. late medieval period. It's the late Catholic Church, so okay. that's that's what interested me. Yeah, and and uh, that's yeah. actually a really that when you say the term patriarchy, that is, that is, is that more of a definition of what a patriarchy is? Something where women are under that much control? Is that like the, yeah. the root definition of it? Yeah, I wrote an essay um, that might interest you. It's called How to Tell if You're Living in a Patriarchy, a Historical Perspective. So that's on Aereo. And um, yeah, a patriarchy is the rule of the fathers. So it's um, when you, you, you belong to your father um, and he has the absolute right to tell you where you can go and um, to, to beat you if you... Uh, misbehave and if and, you know this is sons as well as daughters and then when a woman married she wasn't allowed to own her own money her husband would own anything she earned she wasn't allowed to control her own movements and um, you know he really was uh, the way to think about it is that the husband had the power over a wife that a parent has over a child so th this is a, a very literal patriarchy now some people think that because men had this position of power over women they routinely abused it and, and history doesn't show that at this point you know you had to live usually in a very small place because the majority of people were poor with your um with your spouse for the whole of your lives you know and people wanted to to get on so there isn't this this whole thing where women were routinely abused but we can't judge a system by the way um good people use it we have to judge it by the way abusive people use it so the patriarchal system sometimes men's rights activists um will argue that that patriarchy was actually quite nice for women and, and probably it was for women who had lovely husbands and no um, ambitions but you know it gave an unwarranted power to men to be abusive if they wanted to they couldn't if they were beating their wives up every day the community would intervene if the church could even give permission for her to leave him but if he was just to say you're not allowed to leave the house if he was to beat her relatively lightly not on the head with a cane every day this would be acceptable. He'd be regarded as a strict husband, but not as an abusive one. So we're, you see what I mean? It's, yeah, um, yeah. So back to Mar Margaret Kemp, that was her name, right? Marjorie Kemp, yes. Marjorie Kemp. She, she's, so, she's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, so I, I interrupted you uh, for a minute, but I want to hear the rest of that story about, about her. Oh, so Marjorie Kemp was a, a wonderful character. She, um, she seems that she she was the daughter of a of a mayor John Brunham who was a really significant historical figure. He even challenged the church and the king. He essentially ran the town of Kings Lynn, so she had a lot of power. And she writes in her book that she started two businesses, one against her husband's will. Now this confused historians because women weren't allowed to run businesses in the first place and their money belonged to their husband. And this led feminist historians to look back and discover that actually women did have their own money. They could earn it, they could keep it. There was a kind of unspoken agreement about this. So this, this was interesting, but she said she got visions and she was very dramatic with them. She would fall on the floor, she would writhe about and um, yeah, say that she'd heard things from, from God. She was a very, very strong personality and her husband, it seems, wasn't. So she nearly got um, executed a few times for being um, a lollard, which, um, 
was a kind of heretic because she spoke as a woman she spoke about um, god they tested her to see if she could understand latin and um, she couldn't so she was allowed to go because women weren't allowed to understand latin wow but she... talk about keeping them down <laughs> sounds like the church too just uh, yeah keep let's yeah. keep them let's keep the knowledge down and then they won't even know <laughs> yeah so yeah, she she was. I I think we'd say now, if if we were to look at her, that that she had a, a histrionic or narcissistic personality disorder. She was very very much disliked by everybody she she lived with, but she was a really powerful um, force. So she she travelled about and she wrote her book, and her book is wonderful because it disappeared until. I think it was 1930 something and just bits of it had survived and she looked like a standard um, mystic because that's what had been taken from her book but when you get her actual book she's mostly complaining in a really quite petty way about her friends and neighbors and then sort of being quite spiteful and um, how she'd got the better of them and it's it's a wonderful <laughs> it's a wonderful text I, I, I would love to if she had a Facebook account at the time it would probably read she, kind of similarly. She has a Twitter account. Have a, have a look at it for, for Marjorie Kemp and you'll get quotes from her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of fun. So, um, what, um, oh, I was, see, yeah, I get lulled into the, into the stories of the things I don't know and then I completely Yep, we're having us. a most unstructured conversation. But it is Are you okay with the unstructure? <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. It's Friday night and I'm on my second glass of wine. Oh, uh, drinks with Tony. That's what we, that's what we call it. Um, yeah, because yeah, usually when you interview, I mean, uh, you're interviewing with people that are probably a little more focused on the, let's talk about the politics, let's talk about that. Sometimes mm -hmm. they may have, an, uh, unfortunately in the United States, it seems like every news organization has an agenda uh, of sorts where it's just like, can we just have a real conversation? I don't know. Mm -hmm. How does that work for you? I mean, because you're you've done a lot of publicity for this book. Has it been? Have you had to be like totally on your like? Just go okay. Go over my thinking points. Go over this. What are they going to ask? Um, how can I? Is, has it been a little more combative, or am I just? Uh, Sometimes it is, but it's strange because when we had a kind of baptism of fire when we revealed the project, and during this time we discovered that when interviews were coming in at us now peter was the best at inspiring people because he can be very passionate and james is best at breaking down ideas so that everyone can understand it i am best when people are hostile so oh, yeah. i <laughs> i'm so sorry i didn't know your best <laughs> i apologize <laughs> it's um they, they ended up calling me the the machine gunner because i i kind of snap into a kind of action when when people are hostile mm -hmm. to me sometimes if, if people are friendly then yes i'll just chat nicely but if somebody is is being unfair unreasonable if they're sort of firing hostile questions at me i um I, that that's when i i actually my brain sharpens up and i i think i have a naturally combative personality <laughs> yeah so so when when the uh, when you talk about the project are you talking about the book or are you talking about the academic papers that you were working the, on the papers the um, yeah, yeah the grievance studies probe so that that was um yeah we got a lot of hostile questions for that and but you but uh you and your team also put a lot of work into creating those papers they, they, it's not like you just they, they just didn't come out of thin air you have no, to know I mean, how to put those papers together and do the they, they took i mean they they only took two weeks um in all because we, we produced 20 in 10 months so they only took two weeks but there were three of us and there was i mean jim was working 80 hours um a week Paul, uh, peter was working about 40 i was working about 20 we were you know sort of um, creating these papers which are, are totally indistinguishable so the amount of reading research we're doing the same amount of work as the genuine scholars yeah. and i i think that's a a significant problem because what people can do is they can get an idea of these theories i have a good idea of the theories because of my background in um, literary theory and they can just apply these same ideas to different um situations and just churn things out in the way we churn things out that doesn't make a, a good paper you to, to get tenure in a university you're supposed to um publish a paper once a year for a minimum of seven years now we shouldn't be able to write a paper in two weeks that is considered an excellent contribution to feminist philosophy 
Yes. It's, uh, it, it kind of blows my mind that, um, mm. that these things can get in. Uh, so, you know, sometimes, I, well, sometimes when I read novels that are published and on the bestseller list, I'm like, okay, this person only took two weeks to write this. It's just, <laughs> but in the end, they're just not a great writer or I don't connect with it. And then even like the easy, uh, well, this, this is, I'm putting my brain around it in my little world, but like the easiest novels that are just like, oh my God, this is so, looks so easy to, um, so easy to write because it's so breezy to read. Those are the ones that take four years of <laughs> hitting it harder and harder and people don't understand. Those are the hardest novels to put together, you know. Is- I admire creative writers so much. I, um, I don't have that, unfortunately. I've... Um, I've tried, um, you know, I can produce some short stories and things, but I'm, I'm profoundly uncreative and I, I really do a, a, admire artists of all kinds. <laughs> I, it's funny. Uh, well, speaking of creativity, um, have you ever read that? Have you ever heard of a book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain? No, I don't think so. Because so, what's so interesting about creativity is we have our right brain and our left brain and our left brain is kind of the analytical and the right brain mm. is... so. If we can, if we find ways to turn off the left, the left brain, which is always trying to do, it's doing its, um, it's doing its best to just keep us going and keep us alive and keep everything going. It's like stop listening to the right brain, stop listening to the right brain. So something like a book like uh, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, where it it gives you exercises on how to tweak it, and I try to do that in my workshops too when I'm teaching creative writing. What I'm saying is I feel like everyone has creativity in them. They just, uh, it's just kind of finding the tools of how to tap it. And, and then it's because, I mean, even when you're even doing an academic paper, you are putting together, it, it's a creative process, even though it's analytical, it, there's, there's a creativity to it. You do have to put together something that's for the masses. I, th- to- I think if I, if I get close to, to creativity, I think it's when I'm writing a, an appeal to people if I'm appealing to them to uh, value science or evidence or liberalism or humanism that I think is is the kind of the, the where I get closest to, to artistry is where I can be persuasive <laughs> yeah exactly and that's an art it's like, I, I I have like, a, go ahead I'm sorry I, I have a story for you because you like stories um you were just talking about the right and left brain and so yes. do you, you know about the god helmet do you no no I don't Okay, so the, the God Helmet, Richard Dawkins tried this out because what it does is it, uh, there's a, a feeling that um, people have, who have religious experiences or they feel like they feel the presence of God. Um, what is hypothesized happens is that the right lobe and the uh, left lobe are temporarily disconnected from each other. So because you have two brains, but they usually work together, if they separate, they, you experience this as um, two people. You yourself are two people, or there's another presence in your head. And so the God helmet is something that, um, that produces this. And they, they tried it on Richard Dawkins to see um, if it would work, and, and it did. They showed that quite a lot of atheists who came from a Christian background saw um, Christian um symbolism of of god now richard dawkins didn't say what he saw but he was very very startled and he sort of sat up sharply and he said yes yes that works (laughs) so i something like so i don't know what that is but because of the the thing that i have on my brain Mm -hmm. and it causes my lobes to separate at times so i suffered from um uh, what they call hyper religiosity Mm-hmm. and temporal lobe epilepsy and this has an effect and it's very likely that this is what um, Paul suffered from on the road to Damascus and what a lot of religious experiences have been so I believed for a long time that I had experienced um, God that that I had felt this presence in my brain and then as I got older and the the condition got lesser and then they discovered the cyst there that was um, when I was asked have you ever had profound deja vu have you ever had these kind of profound religious experiences and I, I I'm very interested in the neuro neuroscience of, of religiosity and, and you mentioned to me when you wrote to me that you'd spoken to Michael Shermer Mm-hmm. And I think he, he is the one who really helped me to get out of that religiosity phase. I was reading Why We Believe Real uh, Weird Things and The Believing Brain. Oh, I got to read that. Yeah, no, that, that, was, that was amazing. So I, yeah, I, I was very much a new atheist for, for many years. And it, huh. it was because I had 
been extremely religious and I had realized that it, it was an error and it, it was um, also doing me quite a lot of harm psychologically. And at the time when you were having those religious experiences, did you just assume everyone else was having them as well? Did you think that was like normal? I, I just assumed I had evidence of God. Yeah. I, you know, and, and then um, when I stopped being so religious, I believed for a while that I could, I knew things before they happened mm-hmm. and that I had dreamed, I had prophetic dreams and I was already by nature a skeptic so I wasn't going to go out and tell people this and I decided to test it so what I did was I decided when I wake up I'm going to write down the dreams I've had and then I can show I said to my flatmate I can I think I can do this but I don't expect you to believe me I'm going to write down my dreams every morning and then I will show you and I said to her I'm going to tell you when I know what you're about to say I'm going to say it before you do so that you see that I do and I tried this and it didn't work and it, it didn't work and it didn't work. And then I realized that what was happening was not that I was knowing things before they'd happened, but something was making me think I had already experienced them. And this is wow. deja vu, yeah. which is a, a, an effect of temporal lobe epilepsy. So I'm, I'm, I really find neuroscience and I still suffer from deja vu but it doesn't disorient me so much now because I know what it is yeah I find neuroscience of um, magical thinking and religious um, religious experience very interesting and Michael Shermer was yes absolutely the person who who made me realize what was happening there wow see the first thing I would have done if I thought I was having prophecies is go to the racetrack and put bets on horses (laughs) see it didn't didn't quite work like that it would be I would some something would happen and I would yeah. think you know sometimes you see something and you think oh that reminds me of what I dreamed last night yes yeah so I, I get thought that, that a lot <laughs> yeah, yeah I, but you you might well have done and I might well have done but uh yeah and in this occasion it's what the, the temporal lobe does is it, it makes you think you've seen something before when you haven't and it's a kind of time lag wow I'm tripping. (laughs) Helen, thank you so much for coming on the show. You have beguiled me into having a kind of um, very relaxed conversation that I don't normally have. (laughs) (laughs) Helen Pluckrose on Drinks of Tony. Check out her book that she co-authored, Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. Next week on the show, we have Art Bell. He has a new memoir out, and he created what we all know as Comedy Central. He's a serious OG of the TV. And when, he even went after Jon Stewart to bring him on to replace a fella called Craig Kilborn, and thus created what The Daily Show has become, which is a staple in our culture. So keep listening. Enjoy your weekend. Don't die of COVID unless you're a sociopath narcissist, then breathe deeply into that COVID sexy scratch COVID. COVID. (laughs) Anyway. All right. I'll see you next week. Um, Have a great weekend.